This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.
talk with those who have been uh, in countries where there's no freedom and when they come to a country like ours and experience the freedom they just can't imagine it and spiritually you know what those who have been bound by sin when they experience freedom in Christ there's a new life there's newness thank you so much for uh, coming this morning and I would just ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll be in Acts chapters 3 and 4 this morning. I know we already prayed, but I just sense the need that we need God's help today. Let's just bow our heads again, still our hearts before Him. Lord, we just ask that You would um, do something supernatural today through Your Word. Lord, I pray that there would be just a singular focus that Your Word would uh, penetrate our hearts, that it wouldn't just go kind of bounce off of us and in one ear and out the other, but it would go maybe begin in our ear, but it would end up in our heart. Lord, that it would just penetrate deeply into the recesses of our being and that we would, uh, that we would experience, Lord, just uh, a change today. We really ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a history buff, the name Spartacus probably rings a bell to you. Just a little bit about Spartacus. He was born a hundred or so years before Christ. And he led a slave rebellion against the Roman government. And this slave rebellion was strong enough to where it put the fear in the Roman government because Rome at that time, and, and, and I, I actually researched this some, but Rome evidently had up to possibly several million slaves at that time. And uh, they began to realize <clears throat> that if all of the slaves ever got organized and, and all of them joined a mass rebellion, then Rome would be in trouble. They had a strong army, but no match for up to several million slaves that would be organized together. Spartacus, even though he didn't have the support of all of the slaves, the rebellion that, that he uh, led was almost successful because Spartacus and his army, the slave army, were able to fight the government forces for quite a while before they were finally trapped. And I was reading about this. Evidently, there were two segments of the Roman army and Spartacus and his army, slave army, they got caught in between the two segments of the army and, and they were finally defeated. And, and Spartacus was killed in 71 B.C. Now, there was some confusion on how he was killed. And, and, and I was researching this. And I think that the common uh, thought is that he, was actually, that he actually died by crucifixion. But as I researched this more this past week, it, um, the, the, they're not sure. Historians dispute that death by crucifixion and, and and some actually believe that he was killed by other means and we don't know for sure but what is clear in history is that Rome captured the 6,000 plus remaining slaves and a lot of them had been killed in that final battle but from what uh, history indicates there were at least 6,000 slaves that were still alive fighting with Spartacus and 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 what Rome did was they took all 6,000 plus of those slaves and they crucified them on the highway from where the final battle took place all the way back towards Rome. And it was a grisly scene. And, and, and uh, Rome wanted this grisly scene of thousands of rotting bodies 
to spread fear and keep in check any other slave uprisings. And what I find very interesting is that it's reported that the Romans paid historians. Catch this. They paid historians to write that part of history because they wanted to send a warning to the world that you better not mess with Rome. This will be the result. And that's probably the only reason that that Spartacus ended up in the history books and, and the only reason that we know anything about him. Now, the real mystery is how in the world do we know anything about Jesus? I mean, the story of Spartacus making it into the history books makes sense. It was a warning to the world. But, but, but how is it that a humble Jewish carpenter who was crucified by Rome, like thousands and thousands of others, and, and this humble man was living in, in, in Judea, and, and somebody called Judea the armpit of the Roman Empire. Because nobody wanted to be even in the legions that patrolled Judea. And so Roman historians never wrote about him. Jewish historians never wrote about him. But how is it that we have a, a, a vac, very accurate, detailed account of his life? In fact, this is amazing. This just is, is, is so outstanding. You know more about Jesus today than you do of any of the Roman emperors. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? Well, it came about because of the passion of those who were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And a man by the name of Luke, Dr. Luke, interviewed some of those eyewitnesses and put together an orderly account. And not only do we have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we also have the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles. And and these are eyewitness accounts that Luke, after interviewing them, he put together this orderly account about Jesus Christ and how the church of Jesus Christ started. Now, just as a, a review, last week we began a series of messages entitled Doing Church God's Way. And, and the title of the lesson last week was Rethinking Church. Because we see that the church has strayed so far from the original design and intent. Today, we want to look at the topic of rethinking prayer. Now, remember the Greek word that I gave you last week, ekklesia, and and remember what it means? A gathering, an assembly, a movement. But today, the church has transitioned from a movement to a building, It's transitioned from a gathering to an institution. It's transitioned from being Jesus Christ-centered to being man-centered. Or in some cases, program-centered. But make no mistake, the early church began as a gathering of individuals who believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and had resurrected from the dead. And about 120 of the eyewitnesses went out into the streets of Jerusalem and began to proclaim that Jesus had raised from the dead... And remember, the resurrection wasn't something that had happened 5,000 miles away or, or even 500 miles away or whatever, but it had happened like 100 yards from where they were standing. That gives a new perspective right there. But anyway, on the day of Pentecost, the church was born, and it was born as a movement. There were no buildings. There was no liturgy. Uh, liturgy. Uh, there were no banners, no bands, no Bibles. It was just a group of people that believed that Jesus had raised from the dead. 
And they went out from their community and, and began to spread this good news. And, and here's what I want you to catch. Because this summarizes a good part of what I want to say today. The church in the very beginning was a totally outward focused movement. Let me say that again and then, then, then we'll explain this as we go on through our lesson today. The church in the very beginning was a totally outward focused movement. But do you know what happened over time? The church got buildings. The church got organized. There began to be a hierarchy. And then people began to realize that they could leverage religion to control people. And before long, this, this outwardly focused movement began to turn inward. In fact, let me tell you what I've learned. I'm not very smart, but let me tell you what I've learned the gravitational pull of every local church is back toward the insiders. Back towards us. And invariably, the focus becomes on how comfortable our Sunday morning experience can be. And I want you to listen to this. The, the focus is on how comfortable the seats are. You know, how comfortable the environment is. How friendly we are. How good the coffee and donuts are. By the way, I heard someone say that the donuts were outstanding today. Anybody want to say hallelujah? <laughs> and the focus becomes on how to keep everyone happy with the temperature in the building, which I've learned will never happen. <laughs> and it's always you can count on the faithful few who will point out if the temperature is not perfect. Thank God for those people in the church. <laughs> Bless their hearts, yes. Now, now, let me say that there's nothing wrong with having a comfortable church. You know, as, a, as pastor of this church, I want comfort. I want comfortable chairs. I want the temperature just right, and I especially want good coffee and donuts. But when those things become the major focus of the church, then the church has gotten off track. When more people speak up about being, it being too hot or too cold in church than people who speak up because they're grieved over the meth problem or grieved over the alcohol problem in our community, that's a sign that we have become inward focused. We become more about us rather than rescuing someone from the fires of hell. And I'm confident that a lot of us could tell some horror stories about situations where the church became insider focused. And for example, this is a true story. There was a pastor and his dad who once were traveling and they happened to be gone over a Sunday. And, and so they decided to go to a local church in the town where they were. And as they walked in, the usher was friendly enough and he, he ushered them to the very back row. Now, you know, it wasn't our church because the back rows would have been full. You've got to get here way early to get a back row seat. But anyway, the service began and they had their time of music and the pastor spoke. And, and after the sermon, they started serving communion. So far, so good. Well, the communion servers, they, they served the first few rows and kept working their way back. But then before they got to the back rows, they abruptly turned around and went back up front, put the trays down. They partook of communion. The pastor did the closing prayer and dismissed everyone. These visitors were not even given the opportunity to receive and partake of communion. And, and evidently someone must have noticed their baffled looks. And so they came up to them after the sermon and said, I'm sorry, but here's our practice at this church. We always put guests in the back rows on days that we're serving communion. So they don't accidentally take communion with us because they're not members of this church. 
You know, it was almost like they thought that their church had a patent on communion. They owned it. And I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. And I'm sure that probably some of you have other horror stories. Perhaps when you were growing up, this may get pretty close to some of us, but perhaps your parents got divorced and your church didn't know what to do with a divorcee. And maybe they didn't officially kick them out of the church, but they shunned them out of the church. They made them feel like second-class Christians. You know, actions truly do speak louder than words. Or maybe you went to a church and, and you had a tattoo or several tattoos in that church. And in that church, a tattoo was taboo. And you felt their displeasure. And again, they didn't necessarily say anything to you, but basically shunned you out of the church. Or maybe the pastor was this legalistic guy. He was so rules-oriented that he never showed any grace. And, oh, he loved the hellfire and brimstone approach, but never showed the love of Christ. Or maybe there was a certain group that didn't like the pastor. And even though he was a good and godly man, yet they did a political move and threw the pastor out. And, and the politics in that church were just were so nasty. Or maybe you yourself had an affair. You were sorry, you repented, you came back to God, but the church never showed any grace or forgiveness and would never have anything else to do with you. Or maybe you had a child out of wedlock and you were treated like this terribly contagious plague and they whispered behind your back and gossiped and never made an effort to get you back on track. And I'm not condoning these things at all. Sin is sin. But what I'm trying to say is, is that the church down through the years has many times gotten away from being an ecclesia or an assembly where the focus was on Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And they became so inward focused and they lost sight that the church is for the lost and the church is for the last and the church is for the least. The rallying point of the early church wasn't how you took communion or if you were a member or not or, or, or if, how you were baptized or what kind of music you sang. The, the rallying point was that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God and He rose from the dead. Amen. Now for the rest of our time today, I want to focus on one of the telltale ways to determine if a church is outsider-oriented or insider-oriented. Let me just tell you what it is. I'm going to just blurt it out and then we'll look at Scripture. And I believe that one of the telltale signs, whether a church is insider or outsider focused, is the way a church prays. In fact, let me give you a corny saying that I read. So don't, I'm, I'm not going to take credit because this is really corny, but maybe you'll remember this. How a church prays indicates whether it has strayed. I know that's corny, but how a church prays and specifically how the pastors pray, how the board members pray, how the leaders in the church pray, how the members in the church pray indicates whether or not the church has strayed from the original idea of seeking those who are lost. All right, let's go to Acts. Let's just jump into Acts chapter four. And, and as we prepare to rethink prayer and, and read the first prayer on record that the first group of believers in Jerusalem prayed, I... I want you to think for a moment about the prayers that you pray. And I know what you pray because I pray the same thing. We all pretty much pray the same thing. And there are a few exceptions, but the average prayers that we pretty much pray bless us and bless them. And God put a hedge of protection around us as we go to work or go to Springfield. You know, in summer, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our family. We pray for two or three sick people and we go our merry way. Is that right? Pretty close. And these are not bad prayers. Keep them up. 
But those prayers are so very different than the prayers of the early church. And furthermore, in our conversations, we we say things like this, especially to our kids or grandkids. We ask them, did you say your prayers? And and again, that's not necessarily a bad reminder, but, but do you know what that probably means? That means, did you say what you said last night and the night before that and the night before that and the night before that? I wonder if sometimes God listens to our prayers and says, hey, pray something different than you did last night. Or pray for something big. Try me, test me. Pray something beyond a bless my family prayer. In fact, just guessing if if God answered the prayers that we prayed this past week for most of us, the only person that would be better off is us. Maybe maybe a family member. And again, don't quit praying what you're praying. You have the responsibility to pray for yourself and for your family. All all I'm saying is, is my concern as your pastor and as a fellow Christian... Just leveling the playing field here is that we only pray self-centered prayers. And when that happens, it causes us to become self-centered Christians. And the result is that the ecclesia, the gathering, the movement, the assembly becomes nothing more than church building. And we become church people and we just do church things. And then I found that because we're so insider focused and self-centered, we begin to get on each other's nerves. And then we get unhappy with our church because it's not doing what I think it should do. And so we go find ourselves another building that we can call our church home. Okay, now we're ready to start in Acts chapter 4. The background is that 3,000 people have just joined the church or the ecclesia in one day. A few days later, Peter and John are going to the temple. The temple is the epicenter of, of Judaism. In their minds, of, in the minds of the ancient Jew, the epicenter was where God lived. And so Peter and John are Jews, and even though they're now followers of Christ, yet they still have the habit of going to the temple to pray. Well, as they're going up to the temple, they see a guy who has never been able to walk. He had been lame since birth. Now, let's stop and make sure you understand what the word lame means. My family calls my jokes lame. But in case you didn't know, lame really means they weren't able to walk, okay? Just, I want to clarify our, our uh, terminology here. This guy's lame. He's begging. And Peter and John go by, and, and the guy is probably holding out his little tin can asking for money, alms. That's the way he survives. Well, Peter and John see him, and they say, well, we don't have any money. We've got something better. We just want you to get up and walk. And this guy is miraculously healed and he follows them into the temple. Now, now would you allow me just to read between the lines and kind of surmise what might have happened? So if you're following in scripture, you won't find this part. But anyway, this man that had been lame and we'll just call him Jack. But he follows Peter and John into the temple and and the people in the temple maybe recognize him and they're like, you have got to be kidding. (laughs) Look, Jack is walking. I've known Jack all of my life, and, and Jack has been lame as long as I can remember. Now he's walking. Oh, my word, this is amazing. Well, as everybody gathers around to look at Jack, Peter, bless his heart, he just can't help himself. He decides to preach a sermon in the temple, even though he didn't have any right to. He wasn't a leader there. And in the middle of the sermon, would you believe he says the R word? Oh, the R word. He just can't stay away from the word resurrection. Well, the leaders of the temple were not happy. 
They said, you just can't waltz in here and preach that stuff. And, and besides that, they felt a little picked on because Peter always said in his sermons, and you crucified him, pointing to the leaders. Oh, uh, by the way, you crucified him. And so the leaders, they were offended. And, and they had Peter and John arrested, thrown in jail for the night. Well, word spread throughout the city of their arrest. And the people that were close to Peter and John, I'm sure they were like, oh, no. They crucified Jesus a couple of months ago, and now they've arrested Peter and John. There's a good chance that we'll never see them alive again. Well, after spending the night in jail, the next morning they escorted Peter and John from the jail to stand before the leaders of the temple. And the leader said, okay, what's this thing you keep talking about? Peter says, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) He launches into another sermon about Jesus being the Son of God. And again, he mentions the R word. Told them how Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Well, as he concludes his sermon, he says something that really bugged his audience. And by the way, it still bugs people today. Here's how he concluded his sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. In other words, he was saying there's only one way, and that's through the name of Jesus. There is salvation in no other. (laughs) And you know what? Doesn't it bug people today still? You say that in public and it stirs people up. You know, you can say the man upstairs, you can even get by with God. But when you say Jesus is the only way, people come apart. And the leaders of the temple, they were stirred up and and they probably would have had them thrown in jail again. But the problem was that Jack, you know, the guy that had been healed, was standing there and nobody could deny this miracle. And the leaders, even, even though they wanted to choke Peter and John, they didn't feel like they could exactly punish the miracle workers. Let's read about it in Acts 4.13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Get that boldness. For they could see that they were ordinary men who had had no special training. They'd also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But... Since the man who had been healed was standing right there among them, the council had nothing to say. (laughs) I love it. You know, the leaders know they're between a rock and a hard place. They want to hurt Peter and John because, well, they're, they're given the R word. But they also know there would be some backlash because this lame man was walking because of them. So, so they just issued a warning to Peter and John. They said, we're going to let you go, but we're warning you, you'd better keep your mouth shut. And don't come in here anymore with your ridiculous teaching. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't talk about the resurrection. Quit blaming us for crucifying him. Just keep your mouth shut and we're going to let you go. Well, Peter again, bless his heart. He looks at them and says, okay, you got to do what you got to do. But sorry, we've also got to do what we got to do. We cannot stop talking about what we've seen. Well, Peter and John left the temple area and they found their friends, you know, Mary, James, Bartholomew, uh, Bartholomew, Andrew, and all the other disciples and the people that had become followers of Jesus. And, and as they found their group, they walked up. Can you imagine everyone collectively breathed a sigh of relief? Because again, they didn't know if they'd ever see Peter and John again. Now question, how would you have responded at this point? Let me tell you how I think we would have responded as a church. Um, I think we would have said, man, that was close. We almost lost our number one and number two guys, Peter and John. They were number one, number two. And so to keep that from happening, I, I think we would have said, we need to put some protective measures in place so we don't lose both of you. 
First of all, I think we would have said, Peter and John, you're not allowed to travel together anymore. When Peter goes, John, you stay here. When John goes, Peter, you stay here. We'll link you up with some other people, but you can't travel together. We don't want to lose both of you at the same time. Again, you're not going to find this in Scripture. This is just kind of the way that we think as Americans. Number two, I think we just said we need to lease a fleet of black SUVs with tinted windows. We need to get guys with sunglasses and black suits and little wires hanging out of their ears and weapons hanging from their belts. And we need security. Guys, you are so important to the church. We can't afford to lose you. Number three, uh, we got to tone down the rhetoric here. Peter, no more R word. I mean, no more talk about the resurrection. Maybe you could do a sermon on that phrase that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And John, talk about love. You're John the Beloved. You used to be called son of thunder, but now you're John the Beloved. Why don't you talk about how you made that transition from thunder to love? And, and one more thing. And remember, we're just surmising here and kind of thinking of the way we think. But please, no more of this salvation is only through Jesus Christ. That bothers a lot of people. Uh, now, now, we believe that Jesus is the only way. Yeah, you, you know, we, we, we know that. But, but that's not politically correct today. And so please back off of that for a little while and use some wisdom. Don't stir up any unnecessary trouble for you and for us. Just try to blend in a little bit more. Could you please do that? Doesn't that sound so American? But there was none of that. There was nothing about putting protective measures in place. You know what they did? They prayed. And, and it's interesting. Catch this. They didn't pray, oh God, protect us, bless us, keep us from this, put a hedge of protection around us. Not even close. You want to hear their prayer? Man, this is convicting. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Then all the believers were united as they lifted their voices in prayer. And this is at least, this is the first or at least one of the first prayers of the first century church. And then here's where the prayer begins. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in him. In other words, God, before we ask for anything, we just want to remind you that we know who you're, who we're talking to. You're the sovereign Lord. Nothing is out of your control. Nothing happens without you knowing about it. You made everything. Amen. And then they began to quote an Old Testament passage that predicted that the Messiah would be persecuted and mistreated. In Acts chapter 4 verse 25 says, You spoke long ago, continuing their prayer, by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor King David, your servant, saying, Why did the nations rage? Why did the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his Messiah. And then they brought this into their context and said, that's exactly what happened. Verse 27, that is what has happened here in this city. They began to see Old Testament scripture tying together with reality. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. So they're praying, God, you're the sovereign. God, you predicted these kinds of things were going to happen. And sure enough, they happened right here in our own city just a couple of months ago. And then they finally got to the gimme part. That's normally where we start. Lord, thank you for the day. And then we jump into the gimme part. Help and bless and give. But listen to their request. Verse 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats. And give your servants great boldness in their preaching. 
Time out. Did you notice what they prayed for? Boldness. You got to be kidding. They're asking for boldness? Isn't boldness what got them into this mess? Isn't boldness what landed them in jail in the first place? Isn't boldness what created all the chaos out in the street? Isn't boldness what has created the antagonistic spirit in the city between them and the religious leaders? Isn't boldness the problem? Most of us would have said, Peter, I think you're good on boldness. You got that. But they prayed for more boldness. Let me ask you this question. Do you remember the last time you prayed for boldness to speak His Word to your friends and family? In fact, have you ever prayed for boldness in sharing Christ? Let me just ask you a couple of questions that really shook me this week. And I'll admit it shook me. Do you know why the message of Jesus got to the 21st century? In fact, let me bring it down closer to us. Do you know why the message of Jesus got to us? It's because the first century Christians prayed for boldness and they had boldness. Did you catch that? They had boldness. They prayed for boldness. Well, after praying for boldness, they asked for something even more radical. Check this out. They only asked for two things, boldness, and then they prayed for this in verse 30. Send your healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Have you ever asked that miraculous signs and wonders be done through you? And you say, oh, no, pastor, I don't go to one of those kinds of churches. They're weird. And I'll admit that the churches, you know, from our theological perspective, tend to shy away from this verse because... There are churches that have taken this verse as a license for weirdness. And and I'm not picking on you if you're from one of these churches. But I do believe some churches have distorted this verse. But, But for those of us that are maybe a little bit nervous, should we really shy away from this verse? I mean, if this verse is in the Bible, don't you think there's really something for us? What were they really asking when they prayed to have miraculous signs and wonders be done? Well, they were asking to be able to go out among the people who didn't believe and to be able to live their lives with power and anointing in such a way that people who didn't believe and people who were skeptical, that people would see something in them and go, oh, that must have been an act of God. This was not a prayer to do weird things in the name of Jesus. This was a prayer for God's power to be so evident that it would cause sinners and skeptics to realize that God was behind it all. What if you began to pray your version of this prayer? God, would you please stretch out your hand And do something miraculous among my friends that are anti-church. Among my friends that have been burned by religion and are super skeptical. God, would you be willing to stretch out your hand and, and do something unusual. Not for my benefit, but for the benefit of those who don't believe. Do you realize that miracles in the Bible weren't for the sake of the people that the miracles were performed on? I mean, did you know that? Yeah, it was a good day for them if they were healed. But the point of the miracles was so people would go, oh. Tell me more about Jesus. 
It's not about saying, well, the pastor laid his hands on somebody in the church and they were healed. And so everybody was singing and dancing and shouting. It's a miracle. And it's not about having a revival and advertising a healer is coming to town. That's not what miracles are about. Miracles of healing are merely a setup so that you can be a witness for Jesus. And please understand that miracles of grace are so much more important than miracles of glory. Let me explain. Uh, You know, a physical healing is a miracle of glory, but a spiritual healing is a miracle of grace. And I would much rather see a miracle of grace than a miracle of glory. And I would much rather see someone spiritually begin to walk in Jesus Christ than someone who physically walks for the first time. And again, I'm not against miracles of healing. They're wonderful. But when there is a miracle of healing, it's not just so we we can proclaim that pastor so-and-so has the gift of healing and -and so-and-so benefited from that gift. A miracle of healing is so that others can experience a miracle of God's grace so they can put their trust in Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you, can you imagine what would happen in our church if we would begin to add to, not subtract, add to, pray everything you've been praying. You know, God, thanks for this day. Give me a safe trip. Help my face to not break out. Help the Royals to win. Help me to get that new car. Help her to call me back. It's okay to pray those prayers. But then if we would add to those prayers, would you give me boldness with my friends? I'm not a bold person, God, but would you give me boldness to be able to share Christ? And God, would you stretch out your hand? Would you do something through me that possibly would get my friends who've just written you off and they've written the church off? Would you do something through me that would get them to give you another look and give you a second chance? Can you imagine what would happen if, if we would begin to pray like the first century believers? Well, here's how the story wraps up in verse 31. After this prayer, the building where they were meeting shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached God's message with boldness. So you catch the power was there. The Holy Spirit came again and there was, yes, amazing power. But, but did you notice that be, they began to preach God's message with boldness? And then Luke, who was writing this down, he says, and and frankly, Joe Trussell, I don't quite understand the connection here, but it's there. So verse 32, all the believers were of one heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. So along with the boldness, did you catch that? There was an outbreak of extreme generosity, not because of a sermon, not because somebody said, well, if you give one, God will give 10. None of that nonsense. It was just as they became outsider focused, as they became concerned about their community, as they began to talk about Jesus and his resurrection, there was an outbreak of generosity among the church of Jesus Christ. So as we wrap things up, here's the deal. The way you pray and the way I pray is an indication of where our hearts are. The way you pray, the way I pray is an indication if we are insider focused or outsider focused. And so I want you to pray everything you've been praying, but I want you to add to your prayers, God, give me boldness. And, and, and then pray this, and I'll admit it kind of freaks me out a little bit. But we need to pray, God, would you stretch out your hand and do something in my life that is out of the ordinary that would cause people around me to follow you? And please hear me one more time. You're a Christian. Because the first century church prayed bold prayers. 
And here's what I think. This is just me, but I'm afraid that your prayers, I'm afraid especially my prayers would never have prayed the gospel out of the first century because our prayers are all about protect me and help me and bless me and don't let me skin my knee. In Jesus' name, amen. But ladies and gentlemen, that must change because you are responsible. I am responsible to hand the church off in good shape to the next generation. And so I want to pray bold prayers. I want God to help me to pray bold prayers that I would have boldness in sharing Jesus and not be in your face, not a Bible thumper, not ugly about it. No, that's not it at all. But you know, there would be something winsome about my life and I would just boldly proclaim Jesus and that they would see, you know, this guy here may not be real smart, may be a little bit strange at times, but he's the real deal. He knows Jesus and I need what he has. You and I are responsible to hand the church off in good shape to the next generation. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.
You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.